Welcome to the Vintage Grace Sunday Podcast. We hope our series on the book of Revelation will challenge and encourage you to grow closer to God and recognize that He wins. Let this message be a reminder to you of His love for you and the plan that He has for your life. Wow. Did I get your attention? Are we awake? What is the point of trumpets anyways? I'm sorry for anyone who is a trumpet player. Bless you. I'm so out of breath right now. That was painful. But the point of trumpets is to get your attention. In fact, a herald specifically, it's a different kind of a trumpet, but it's someone who says something big is coming. Are you paying attention? Are you ready for what's next? The herald was to prepare the way for the king, for the king to come, for his will to be done. And he says, I don't want you to miss the big deal. And so what is the big deal today? Well, Jesus wins. Somebody say amen. Amen. Like that's a big deal that we know the final score, that we know the ultimate outcome. But the big deal today in Revelation, specifically with the trumpets, if you've been pre-reading, is that the judgment and the wrath of God is coming. That's a big deal. And by God's grace, he gives us a warning. We often use this stool as a metaphor for the throne of our heart, that it's God's grace and loving kindness that taps us on the shoulder and says, Drew, if you're sitting in his seat, the wrath of God is coming. Are you aware? Are you ready? And so last week, we were in chapter 6, verse 10. And again, what we're kind of doing is quick flyby of the whole study. And in chapter 6, verse 10, the, the saints cry out and they say, God, how much longer should we suffer? How much longer? This is under the altar of God. How much longer should we suffer? The question is, God, if we're waiting, is this time wasted time? How much longer does this need to go on? And in 611, Jesus gives an answer. Do you remember the answer? He says this, until the kingdom work of the gospel is complete. You're going to continue to suffer until the kingdom work of the gospel is complete, until everyone has heard, and until as many have repented and got off the throne of their heart. Until that moment, you'll continue to suffer. Why? Because God does something unique in our suffering that he doesn't accomplish any other way. It's incredible. And it's not like I'm saying as your pastor, I can't wait till you suffer. But when we're in the middle of suffering, make no mistake, there's something that God is doing for his glory and your good that does not get accomplished any other way. We've seen this in the gap. Is this not like your favorite slide at Vintage Grace? By favorite, I mean your least favorite. The pain is the gap between your present state and your desired state. And we believe at Vintage that God wastes nothing. That in the gap of our pain that God is doing something and the same thing can be true in the judgment of God. That in the judgment of God, he wastes nothing. Even his judgment is good news. And so three things before we read the text today, because we're going to be in chapters 8 through 11. Did you pre-read? If not, you're host. It's that simple. You're going to post-read. That's fine too. We're covering four chapters today, and in these chapters, we're zooming in on the judgment of God. Chapters 8 through 11 is really an expanded reality of chapter 6, verse 11. In chapter 6, verse 11, he says, until the kingdom work of the gospel is complete, and here's what's going to happen until that day is done. And so that's what we're looking at. Three things before we read the text. The first one is this, that God wastes nothing. That he's working in the moment of the gaps, of the pain, of the suffering, But the reality is every gap in our life of suffering is an opportunity for us to remember that God is good all the time. In fact, I I feel that every morning I wake up because my body keeps hurting. Every morning it feels worse and worse. And don't tell me I'm young. Multiple knee surgeries, heart conditions, separated shoulder. I'm the oldest young man you'll meet. I am a broken human being. Somebody say amen. My wife's not in this service. But every gap is a moment for us to say, this isn't my body. This is not where I'm going long term. As the world is decaying, God wastes nothing, but the hope is that he's tapping us on the shoulder, calling us back to remember. That's the first thing. The second thing is we must remember the genre that we're reading, this apocalyptic literature. The revelation is showing us the present day reality, the future reality, so that we might respond to the brokenness appropriately. Guys, we're not reading a horror film. We talked about that last week. We're not reading a horror film at all, but the reality is the author's intent, the audience, as they would have read this, they wouldn't have been looking for some mysterious code. Instead, they would have recognized that God was sharing this for our confidence, for our certainty, and for our hope to be increased. Now, I say that because we're going to read some of what I think is the most depressing verses in the book. 
So we got to remember what we're reading, the genre, the context, the original author, the audience. And the third thing before we read is simply this. Judgment is a good thing. You're like, Drew, don't try to sell me that wheatgrass is good for me. It's awful. No, no, no. The judgment of God is a good thing for two reasons. Here's the first one. So far, we haven't had it in totality. Here's why that's good. Because out of his loving kindness, he's waiting for as many people as possible to respond. Out of his grace and out of his mercy, he's giving us opportunity. So as the world is decaying, as our bodies decay, it's this reminder that God is still being patient with us. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing, though. God is not some absent father that's sitting around saying, I don't care about your suffering. The suffering of this world one day will be judged full and complete. That's good news. Because God cannot be a God who will tolerate this kind of evil forever and ever. And so there's this growing intensity we're seeing in the book from one third to two thirds of of God's call from the fours last week to the thirds this week. And so the trumpet calls us to wake up. That's the calling of the trumpet, to wake up, to be ready. And even as we end our text today, there's this hallelujah chorus. But for those who still sit on the throne of their heart, it is not good news, his second coming. It's a day of judgment and a day of wrath that is deserved and earned. And it's something that you and I deserve, that you and I have earned, which is what makes it good news is what we call grace. So we're going to cover a lot today, a ton. I don't know how we're going to do it. God's grace is sufficient. My words are not. So we'll do our best. Here's where we were last week. Last two weeks, we've covered this heavenly throne room vision coming from the churches, chapters four through 16, vision of God in his throne room. And then we stepped into the seven sealed scroll, the standing risen lamb of God. We looked at the seven seals and then we had this pause at the end of every seven, there's this interlude. Chapter seven was the interlude last week. Chapters 10, 11 with the interlude this week. So here's what we're covering this week. You're like, yeah, right. Good luck, Drew. Thank you. I appreciate the encouragement. All the yellow we're covering this week. I hope you pre-read. If not, you'll post-read. We're going to get seven trumpets. The first four we zoom in on, and then the last three come with an additional woe. Chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. This large interlude today. And then next week, we're going to pick up chapter 12, verses 12, 1, and we're going to slow down a little bit. So today, buckle up. You can actually go a little slower starting next week. This is where we're going. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and then ultimately seven bold judgments. Now, I think that these are seven judgments that are from different perspectives at similar time with increased intensity. That's what we're looking at right now. These are seven different windows and pictures. I think as we read the text today, we're not going to learn any new truths. We're going to learn anything new necessarily today, but we're going to learn it in a new way from a different vantage point, a different angle. But I do think the way that Jesus gives John the vision and John gives it to us is so that these truths would stick in our heart. They stick in our head, that we would hear them, that we would see them. And so there's a staying power to these verses. Now, we're going to read all of chapter eight and all of chapter nine right now together. So again, if you have your Bibles, turn there. This is where we're going. Now, here's the summary statement. John's going to ask us to remember God's plagues against Egypt. And like in Exodus, God's wrath against sin doesn't bring repentance. It's a bummer. His wrath against Egypt and Pharaoh doesn't bring repentance for the rejection of the king. And so last week we saw who can stand in light of the wrath of God. And it's just the lamb and it's just his followers. That was chapter 7. Just the followers of the lamb will stand. Now we're going to see how will the lamb conquer. He served, he laid down his life, and he calls those of us who follow him to imitate and do the same. And he's going to see that mercy leads to repentance even more than wrath. So again, buckle up. Chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Here we go. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, picking up from last week. There was a silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense and the prayers of the saints, it rose before God from the hand of the angel Then the angel took the censer and he filled it with fire from the altar and he threw it on the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there was followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the grass was burned up. The second angel then blew his trumpet. Something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became as blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And a third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. 
It fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of the water, and the name of the star was Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had become bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of the light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, that the blast of the other trumpets of the three angels are about to blow. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, and he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened, and the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. They were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to torment them for five months, but they were allowed to torment for five months, but they were not allowed to kill them. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces and their hair like woman's hair and their teeth like lion teeth and their breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noise of their wings and the noise of any chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and sting like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek it is called Apollon. The first woe has passed, oh, but behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. I heard a voice from the four horns of the gold altar before God saying that the sixth angel at his trumpet released the four angels who are bound at the great rivers of Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mountain troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode on them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of horses were like lion's heads. Fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire, the smoke, the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horse is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with their heads. And by means of them, they wound the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor did they give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze. Stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor do they repent of their murderers, their sorceries, their sexual immoralities, or their thefts. Father God, as we read your word, we know that it does not return void. We know that you gave it to us as a warning to remind us that waiting time is not wasted. There's a lot of stuff in this world. There's a lot of present brokenness and a lot of future brokenness that's yet to come. Lord, would we redeem what time we have left this morning to hear this warning, to believe it, and ultimately, Spirit of God, to inspire us to play our part right now, not later when we have time, not later when we're ready, not later when they're ready, because the day of you, the Lord, is near. So, Spirit of God, draw us near to you as we set apart this time. Would you draw near to us, we pray. And everybody said, amen. Chapter 8, verse 1, we're picking up the seventh seal. So we had the six last week, we had the interlude in chapter seven, and now we're finishing the seventh seal. Now again, I wanna walk through this rather quickly, but pay attention here, because this connects back to chapter six, verse 17. There's this 30 minutes of pause. I've told you before, it's a bummer if you don't like to praise Jesus, because that's what heaven's gonna be, right? It's gonna be this big old praise party, this big old singing and dancing. I'm just convinced I'm gonna have better moves in heaven, but it's gonna be a massive party celebrating the worth and the glory of God, and yet for 30 minutes, there's silence in heaven. Pay attention. For 30 minutes, there's silence in heaven. I think it's symbolic of Romans chapter three, verse 19, when Paul builds this argument. I've been studying Romans for our next series. Paul's been building this argument in chapters one, two, and three. Who is worthy? Who is righteous? Nobody, no, not one. And so every one of us will give an answer before Jesus someday, why should let us into heaven? And apart from the name of Jesus, we have nothing to say. There's silence in heaven. 
There's this silent moment where he, he sees the seven angels standing before God. The seven trumpets were given to them, but it's this 30 minutes of being quiet. And I think it reminds us of Romans chapter 3, that as the scroll is unsealed, it's revealing God's plan for salvation and for justice. And, and there's this captive, all of heaven, holding its breath. It's this reminder for you and I that we want to be like the chapter 7 people. When you read what happens in chapter eight and nine, please don't miss this. I want to be in chapter seven, amen? I want to be those who are sealed, those who are set apart. And so those people are silent, they're quiet. What's clear to me in chapter seven leading into chapter eight is that chapter eight and nine is in response to the people praying to God in chapter seven. It's in response, God calls us to pray to him. You and I don't have power, but we believe in his grace that prayer is the work. That's about all the power we have is to talk to the one that actually has the power. And so chapters 8 9 is a direct result of the people of God crying out in chapter 6 and in chapter 7. That's what we see here. And so as the text goes on, don't miss the connection to Romans chapter 4 where we've been. Don't miss the connection to 8 today. And don't miss the connection to 11. I would say next week, but the reality is we're covering 8 and 11 today. So at the end of this week, we're going to see this same picture. And so what happens is the angel comes and he, he grabs, here's what the text says, the angel took the censer, he filled it with fire from the altar, and he throws it down on the earth and peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and of earthquake. Go read about it in Genesis and Sodom and Gomorrah. You can read about it in Ezekiel, the burning coals and fire that God uses the glory of himself to cast judgment for his wrath. It's not that he's an absent father. It's not that he's sitting around naive. It's not that he doesn't notice all the suffering in the world. This is his response to the suffering of the world. And so that's the seventh seal, which really launches then into the seven trumpets. You see that in chapter eight. And so now we see the trumpets. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there was followed with hail and fire mixed with blood. These are thrown upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. Third of the trees burned up and the green grass was burned up. Are you seeing some themes here? If you don't see him now, let's look at the next text. As we see this, there's burning with fire. There's blazing like a torch. Every single one, you see this rather increased attention to detail. Fire, then there's a third. Do you see it now? I tried to put it on yellow. Do you see it on the screen? John's getting our attention. There's this building reality that the earth is losing its mind. That the earth is crying out for new creation. The earth is saying we cannot handle the wrath of God and the brokenness. Remember, part of the effect of sin is the brokenness of this world, that the world is literally falling apart. That's what we're seeing in chapter 8. That's what the trumpets portray. And the reality is, as we read chapter 8, so many people want to have this conversation. Well, Drew, is, is the trumpets today or is the trumpets tomorrow? And what's my answer? Well, A, my answer is it actually doesn't really matter to the big idea. My answer is B, I think yes. And you're like, I asked an either or question. And I said, yes, you heard me correctly. I think there's an element of this, like the four horsemen that is today. And there's an element that's building an intensity that's coming more tomorrow. And the reality is I don't think it affects the big idea beyond that. I could argue either way, but here's the big idea. I think from Jesus to John and John to us, are we paying attention? Are you guys paying attention to the brokenness of your body, to the brokenness of the world? Are you paying attention to the fact that the black tape for all of us is going to end? We do know that we're dying, right? So the earth is dying too. You don't have to love Jesus to actually believe that. You can read articles all over that talks about the earth dying. And so here's John. We're coming to a climax. We're building to this day, the last day. And here's the reality. People are like, we just got to fix it before it's too late. Jesus told us it's going to get worse. I'm not saying we accept it. I think he gives us a role in the world to steward creation. He gives us a role in the world to steward our bodies. But if your body's breaking down and you're getting older, well, guess what? That's the effects of sin and that's normal. That's the truth. And so that's what we see here in Revelation. But is anyone paying attention? Because the earth is crying out for a new creation. Now, a little pre-teaching, we'll get to chapter nine in just a moment. In chapter nine, verse six, how bad is it gonna get? You heard the text. It's gonna get so bad that people are gonna wish that they were dead. That's where we're heading. Does anyone else feel like that's actually a part of our life today? It's going to get so bad that people are like, man, I just wish I didn't live anymore. I've had friends say this to me. You've had neighbors say this to you if you're listening. That's the truth of the world. That's the truth of the reality. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice and it flew directly overhead. And he says, whoa, 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 vintage, are you paying attention? 
John, are you paying attention? Early church, are you paying attention? Woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of their trumpets, the three angels are about to blow. And so we have this role, I think chapter nine, verse six tells us, pay attention to what our role is. Our role, I believe, is very clearly to be proclaiming priests and praying people. That's the work. The work is to be proclaiming priests and praying people. And so that's what he has called us to do. And we're going to see this in chapter 11. In chapter 11, we're going to read about these two witnesses. And let's pay attention. Just because there's chaos in the world, that doesn't mean we don't have a role in it. In fact, part of me wishes we would have preached this before COVID, but I kind of feel like we have been because we preach the same sermon every Sunday at Vintage Grace. Trust God, treasure God. Not setbacks, but what? Setups. So when the world's falling apart, everyone's like, oh my gosh, the the world's going to end. You as a Christian come and say, yeah, it is. Are you ready? (laughs) Like you as a Christian don't have to freak out. You can engage in the brokenness of the world, in COVID-19, in the world falling apart, in our bodies breaking. You get to engage and say, yeah, Jesus told me that. I knew that was coming. Isn't it a game changer when you know the final score? You're not caught off guard at halftime. You're not screaming at the TV. You're not afraid of the eagle saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're like, whoa, 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 right? Like there's this spirit of worship. There's a spirit of, of excitement. I'm not excited for the wrath. I deserve the wrath. I'm excited for the grace. I'm excited to be done with this broken place. I'm excited to be in glory. That only comes through the work of Jesus. And so we're praying people. We're crying out to God saying, God, do what only you can do. Like you saved me, saved others. Use these woes to save others because here's the truth. God has consistently used natural disasters. See Egypt, see our present, see the past in Babylon and see the future judgment. God has consistently used natural disasters to tap us on the shoulder and say, guys, this is one way that I'm working in this holy war to call people to get off the throne of their hearts, to remember the world has fallen, to remember the world is going away and to get right with me before it's too late. That's why the eagles say, whoa, whoa, whoa. And God uses our role as proclaiming priests and praying people because he uses us like he does the witnesses in just a moment in a way that he doesn't do it just through natural disasters. Let's flip the page to chapter nine, verses one through two. Now, again, as we step in here, we increase the intensity with the woes. These are some of the darkest verses in the text. The most depressing verse for me is in the text here. We must remember the final score. Here's what the text says. He says, and the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I see this star from heaven falling down. He's given keys to a shaft. Sometimes we go to Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. I don't think that this is Satan here. I think that this is God using his angels to accomplish his will. So I don't think there's a textual argument to say that this is Satan that's coming down. Now, that being said, please don't miss this. Christians have a tendency to do one of two things with Satan. Either don't give him any respect, and you forget how powerful he is, or give him way too much respect, and you actually worship him, give him too much power. Satan is on a leash. Satan is under the control of Yahweh, of the Father, the Son, the Spirit, three in one. Pay attention to how John tells us that. And so God is working, and as this angel goes down and opens the shaft, there's this smoke, this dark, ominous reality, and they were given power as he unlocks the means. And these are Satan minions that we're looking at here in chapter nine, but they were given power. God is still in control. God has not left the throne of his kingdom and of his world. He's still in control. And then he uses this language. He says, you're not allowed to harm only the people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Again, I want that seal. Anyone else? He doesn't have power over those of us. The demonic powers do not affect us. In fact, I think nine verse four is a key that we're all affected by the seals, but those who aren't sealed by the Holy Spirit, the name of God, are I think affected by demonic possession and oppression, both and. And so don't miss that. That's what we're reading about here. But they were allowed to torment them for five months. Again, God's sovereignty, God's plan, God's timing, God's control, but not to kill them. But their torment was painful. Does torment hurt? Yes. It hurts so much that those who don't love Jesus, they're actually saying, would you just kill us? That's what 9.6 says. Would you just take us away from this torment and from this affliction? Church, are we listening Are we paying attention to what's happening here in the text? That's this first woe. And then you see all these words like. Remember, John doesn't even have words to describe what he's seeing. It's like this, it's like this, it's like this. He wants us to see that Rome is a real enemy for John and his people, but behind Rome, who's the real enemy? The demonic oppression. Behind Rome, behind even the brokenness of this world, again, Paul tells us we have three enemies, the world itself, which has fallen, Satan himself, and our flesh itself. 
And behind the world and even behind Satan is his minions that are actually leading forward. It's these demonic, the fifth one is this demonic locusts and mental health. The sixth one is the demonic horses, the fallen stars, which the original audience would have remembered. These are demonic beings. That's how the Jews would have read this text. But again, they have tails and they sting like scorpions. It hurts, but their power to hurt people is limited for five months in their tails. The text goes on, he said, they have as them king over the angels of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek is Apollon. That word means destruction. Church, don't miss this. The world is getting worse and we're just warming up. There are spiritual enemies and Rome is not the spiritual enemy. Rome is an enemy on some level that wishes to destroy the Jews. But as Christians, don't miss this. We don't ever have enemies. The definition of an enemy is wishing ill or harm upon someone. As Christians, we just want them to see Jesus. As Christians, we recognize that we were an enemy of God, but God made those of us who were far near in Christ. And so these verses are dark. It's this ugly picture, but it's the demonic reality that's happening behind. The text goes on, and this is what it says. He says, these are the chiefs, the first who has passed. Behold, the two are still coming. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice in the four horns, and he says, come, release them from the east. Again, this is God's sovereignty. God has been in control. Look at what the text says. God says, the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound to the great rivers of Euphrates. So the four angels who had been what? Prepared beforehand. That God has been waiting for this time, that when the time is right, God is not an absent father. He will release his wrath and his judgment. And yet even in that, he's tapping us on the shoulder. Drew, get off the throne. Drew, repent. Drew, come back before it's too late. And so this is God's sovereignty. He's reigning on his throne on high. He's not left his throne. He's been waiting in his loving kindness. Now, all these enemies come from Euphrates. Euphrates would have been the east for them. Now, from the east is what you see. When Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, where do they go? They go to the east. When Israel's enemies rise up and they attack, they come from the east. The east is very symbolic for them. So that's what we see here in the text, that the eastern horizon for the original audience is actually where the enemies reside and they come from. And so there's this direct physical enemy that's coming from the east, but it's actually the spiritual one that they must very be concerned about. As the text goes on, we see this, that this army is large. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. Anyone know what that number means? Big. That's what it means. And more often than not, in Revelation, we're reading symbols, not stats. That's what we see, this large army that is coming, that on one level, God is still sovereign over, that God is still using for his glory to bring the wrath that we deserve. The text goes on, it says this, I heard the number, I saw and I heard, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision. And again, you start to see these pictures. Now, these are pictures specifically of, I think for them, Roman oppression. You see the power of the horses in their mouths and in their tails, even the way in which the Roman soldiers would have dressed with pointy helmets and mane-like figures. That's, I think, the illicit, and here's the reality. C.S. Lewis says it this way, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts at us in our pain. In this painful moment, God is shouting at the world saying, guys, this is the wrath you've deserved. This is the wrath you've earned. Repent, repent, repent. God's judgments, what we see in the text here, is that God's judgments are never punitive, but instead they're wooing us to repentance when we compromise and create and live in adultery and adulterous lives. The seal would have spared them. The seal would have spared them, and that the wrath comes because they're not sealed. If you're sealed, do you incur this wrath? No. You feel the pain, but you don't ultimately incur the wrath. Look at what the text says. So you'd think at the end of this point, if he's tapping us on the shoulder, we get off the throne of our heart, right? Here's what the text says. This for me is so discouraging. The rest of mankind who were not killed, the rest of mankind that kept feeling the tap of the Holy Spirit on their shoulder by the plagues, they did not repent of the works of their hands, nor did they give up worshiping demons, idols. That's what got him in this problem. They're here because of their false worship, and God will not tolerate it much longer. And that's the intensity, that's the building of Revelation, and yet what it's seen in 21, nor did they repent of their murder, their sorceries, their sexuality, or their thefts. He's a good father, and he's tapping them on the shoulder. The father, because he loves us, actually gives us his wrath, and he says, I love the wrath before it's too late. That's what these are. These are moments of wrath that's building in intensity before the final moment of judgment that's coming. And then we get this large interlude. That's all of chapter 10 and 11. That's what I mean. I hope you pre-read. In 10 and 11, it kind of lines up with chapter 7, our past large interlude. And in both of these cases, we see God's passion to preserve and to protect his people if you get off the throne of your heart. 
If you're sealed by the blood of the lamb, if you remember his way, not your way. And so here's what the text says. Here's the interlude. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He had this little scroll in his hand. Now, again, if you want to read about the little scroll more, if you want to read specifically about these seven thunders sounded, go read Leviticus 26, because here's what he says next. Then he says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the seven thunders, don't write it down. That's it. You're like, well, well, let's start with the seven thunders. I can't because John didn't. John's like, I can't. He told me not to tell you. So again, there's these other judgment, these other wrath. That's the reality of all of these scrolls. The text goes on. It says, and he swore by him forever and ever, created in heaven, what's in and the earth is in it and the sea and what's in it. There would be no more delay. Church, it's game time. Do we recognize that? This building intensity, do we recognize that it's game time, that it's not just the end of the world, that we get hit by a bus today? That's the truth of the matter. But in that day, the trumpet was called. It was sounded by the seventh angel so that the mystery of God be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants and the prophets. And then here's where he zooms in. He says, now go take the scroll, that little scroll, go take that scroll and eat it. Now, have we ever heard this language before? Anyone know what text? Comes from a book that starts with an is and ends with an eagle. So it come, you guys are so smart. It comes straight from Ezekiel chapter two. We've seen this before. So the angel of God tells John, now go take that little scroll from the hand and go eat it. So again, you're welcome. I gave you this bit of honey. You're welcome. You know, I'm all about giving fig newtons and honey. And so again, hopefully you sat on one. Go take it and eat it. Now, as you eat it, here's what he says. Your stomach will be bitter in your, but your mouth will be sweet as honey. What's he talking about? I think what he's talking about here specifically, because here's what I love, by the way. What does he do? When the angel of God says something, what does he do? He does it. Please don't read over that too quickly because I don't know about you, but how good are you at doing what you're told? Right? Like it's Mother's Day. It's a great day to repent, right? Like pay attention. Part of why I read all of chapter eight and part of chapter nine and all of chapter nine. Here's why. What does John tell us from Jesus in chapter one, verse three? Anybody remember? If you read this book, you will be what? Blessed. You are so welcome. I'm so good to you, Vaughn. You've been blessed. Only if you read and hear and what? Do it, apply it, put it to practice. So when the angel says, hey, go eat the scroll, I don't know about you, but I tend to be that guy that's like, okay, I'm in until you ask me to do something really hard. And I'm like, this is weird, God, are you sure? He's like, I didn't stutter. You heard me, go. And I took and I ate the scroll from the hand of the angel. I ate it and it was as sweet as honey. Why are we so surprised when God tells us something and we do it and it's true? He eats it, he goes, oh, this is as sweet as honey. But then when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must now go do something. He gives us something to do for a purpose. What? To prophesy. You must receive and now you must go talk. You must receive and now you must go tell the story. The story of church, I think for John, who was a committed Jew, don't miss this, the author. John is a committed Jew. He loved his Jewish heritage. He loved his Jewish brothers. He wanted nothing more for them to come to faith. One of the greatest tragedies for the Jews was when their city and their synagogue and their temple was destroyed. If you remember the timeline of the early church, at the beginning of the book of Acts, there were 12 people that followed Jesus. Really, there were 11, and really there was like three, and they were all women, if you really want to go back to the tomb. (laughs) Right, like that's the beginning of the church, and the church grows slowly but surely. How does the church grow? Through persecution, through the blood of the martyrs, and through people telling their story. That's how the church grows. It grows from 12 to 120 in the upper room. It goes from 120 to 3,000. It's building slowly, but at the point of AD 70, 30 some odd years after Jesus' death, Jerusalem gets destroyed. Rome has ransacked it. And at this point, the Roman government, there's 0.017% of the Roman Empire that's Christians. It's clearly not a big deal yet. It's a big deal, but it hasn't spread. And yet between the years of 70 and 8,300, now it's 10% of the Roman Empire. There's 6 million people. That's massive growth from 70 to 300. But you want to know when the massive growth comes? From 300 to 350, now we're up to 300 million. There's this massive growth of the church. How does the church grow? Well, on some level, the church grows because Rome took over Jerusalem. Because when God sees the enemy trying to set us back, what's he really doing? He's setting us up. And what's he setting us up for? We're not going to sit in a huddle in the upper room in Jerusalem. We have to scatter through persecution and we have to go. And as we go, we're going to tell our story. So do you see the reality that there's this sweet honey taste that the kingdom of God is advancing? And yet there's this bitter stomach reality that actually people have died and I don't have what I want. And I don't like the Jerusalem got ransacked. But the reality is through that suffering, through that setback, what happened? The kingdom exploded. Church, just don't miss this. 
Way too often, bad things happen. And at Vintage Grace, we don't believe there's bad news in the kingdom of God. There's only news that God's using for his glory and your good. That's a big deal when your son gets diagnosed with cancer. That's a big deal when you're facing the brokenness of COVID, when you're facing the brokenness of the tensions of this world and the reality of what we step into, that the world is losing its mind, that the world is falling apart. There is no bad news. Only news that he's using for his glory and our good. And so that's the interlude. The interlude is, John, go take this, go receive this. Not only receive this, but now what? You must go again and prophesy to many people, nations, languages, and kings. Where is John? He's on the island of Patmos. He's persecuted. He's in hiding. He's in prison. He doesn't have life the way that he wants. Does that match anybody else? Does anyone else not have life exactly the way that they want? Right? That's our life. Here's the good news. God's doing something beyond what you even know. It's not a setback. It's actually a setup. The text goes on and it says this. Here's the short vision. He gives us this short vision. And again, you're going to have to do some post reading. But in chapter 11, he's given a measuring rod like a staff. And he's told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But don't measure the outside of the temple. Just measure the inside. In the inside, that's the sacred space. That's the holy of holies. In fact, as you read the New Testament, Peter says in 1 Peter 2 and the author of Hebrews as well as Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, they reference the fact that our lives are a temple of God. But that's our body. That's the inworking of the Holy Spirit that he resides in us. So again, measure the inside, measure the people. Don't measure the outside because the outside, I'm actually going to let the enemy on a leash. I'm going to let the enemy go destroy the outside. That's what it says here. I'm going to grant authority. Who's in charge? He is. I'm going to grant authority to my two witnesses and they're going to prophesy on the inside, on the outside. They're going to tell all these stories, but on the outside, don't measure it because I'm actually going to let it be destroyed. The text goes on. It says this, and these witnesses, there's two of them. They're going to be like two olive trees, two lampstands, and they're going to stand before the Lord of the earth. When he says that, I think specifically for these witnesses. Now, again, I would argue that these witnesses are not just two specific witnesses, but the church in general. Why? Because lampstands are what? According to Revelation at the beginning, what are the lampstands? The churches. And that's the vision that John's been given. Not only that, but we also see the number two in Matthew 18 and Deuteronomy 19 that where two or more are gathered, what happens? There's judgment and there's wrath that's proclaimed. That's the text. When two or more are gathered, so you have these two witnesses, these churches rising up like lampstands, like olive trees. Go read Zechariah chapter three through four. I told you guys there was gonna be homework, right? Y'all wanted to go through Revelation. I love it. But there's a lot of reading. Go read Zechariah. You're going to see kingly priests and figures, which John just told us in chapter 5, verse 10. Who are the kingly priests and figures at Vintage Grace? We are. We are, which means we have a role right now, and God has a plan. And he says this, go testify. Go share. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. You want to put wrath on him, I will put wrath on you. So they have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall. They're prophesying, they're sharing. Look at verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, then, only then, does the enemy actually have any sort of authority that's still granted by God. That the two witnesses proclaim the way of the lamb. They proclaim, they tap people on the shoulder, they say, man, get off the throne of your heart, recognize who Jesus is. Recognize who he is. And it's at this point that actually we see the beast show up, verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, then the beast rises from the bottomless pit and will make war on them and will conquer them and kill them. Now, again, Christian means like Christ. So, again, you're here today. If you call yourself a Christian, do you want to be like Christ? I'm looking for a hand raise. This is going to be important. Okay. So, again, I don't know who raised their hand. It's okay. But this is God's call. Follow me. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me. And where's he going? Tell Golgotha. And, and here's what we see. And then the beast rises up from the bottom so it makes war on these two witnesses, the churches of their day. And I think on some level, we must be prepared for the churches of our day. This is the way of the lamb. The text goes on and says this. And then their dead bodies in the street in the great city, symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, some of the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies. We've been killed. Remember who John's talking to. He's talking to people, if you choose to follow Jesus, the odds are high that you will die. If you don't choose to follow Jesus, the odds are guaranteed that you will die. Death is not the issue. The issue is your allegiance of your heart. But if you follow Jesus and you prophesy like the witnesses do, you will die. And for three and a half days, they mock, that they make merry, they exchange presents. There's like holidays for dead Christians. Guys, this is true in the Roman Empire. And this will be true, I believe, in the future. Why? Because these two prophets tormented all of those who didn't love Jesus. Because when you sit on the throne of your heart and someone comes to you and taps you on the shoulder, what do you tell them to do? Buzz off. That's what you tell them to do. Leave me alone. 
Get out of here. Don't tell me. This is my throne. See? And so these witnesses, I pray with grace and truth and humility, they prophesied. They said, guys, the day is coming. The imminent wrath of God is coming. And so church, we must pay attention to our roles in Revelation, which I think is very similar to the roles of the witnesses. Prayer is the work, proclaiming priests. And oh, by the way, if you pray and if you proclaim, guess what? These guys are still gonna die. But as believers, death is not the enemy, but God will raise and God will win and God will use our life and our death for the good of his glory and the good of others. Church, please hear me. I want my life to matter forever. Do you? I want my life and the words and my time and my treasure and my talent. I want my life and my death to matter. And so if God can use my black tape death for his glory and others good, sign me up. Amen? Now I love that not everyone said amen. You know what that means at Vintage Grace. It means put me in, coach. I'm ready. And the reality is there's people in the room right now that aren't ready, but here's the good news. The time's coming, and he's tapping us on the shoulder and saying, are you ready? Are you ready? Because this is the cost of following Jesus. And for what it's worth, I get it. As a pastor, sometimes I'm not ready. I'm right there with you. But I want to encourage you that according to Revelation, the end is near and we need to get there. We need to be ready ourselves and help others be ready to die too. That's the truth of Mother's Day. Not to not let your babies die, but to get them ready to die. That's the truth of Revelation. This day is coming. And so please notice, Revelation is not a horror film. It's a, it's a film of hope. It's a film of here's the reality. God's people are spiritually protected. We've seen this over and over again, that they're sealed, that they're measured, that they're protected, that the woman is gonna be safe next week, that our names are in the book of life. But don't miss this. Do Christians encounter cancer? Do Christians deal with a broken world? Do Christians deal with broken bodies and broken marriages? Yes. Don't miss this, church. That's, the gospel is not my life's all put together. The gospel is Jesus is put together. That's the gospel. The gospel is that the church is going to be killed. They're going to be trampled. The witnesses are going to be killed. Children are going to be harmed. They're going to be in captive and they're going to die. Welcome to Vintage Grace. But the grace of God is that he tells us before. Why? So that we don't freak out at halftime. So that as the temperature gets turned up and the solipsis collision happens, church, we're ready. Are you ready? Seven of us. I'll take it. Jesus had 11. Church, this is the call of Revelation. Be ready, be on guard. We are physically vulnerable, but we are eternally risen and protected, amen? Amen. And so that's what we see. So this is not a depressing book, don't miss this, but God raises up the witnesses. He raises them up. He says, come up here. There's the way of the standing risen lamb of God. And that's what we see in the text. We don't see this horror film. We see this film of hope and of resurrection and of eternity. And don't miss this in chapter seven. I know we're going through this book fast, but in chapter seven, verse nine, it says the multitudes were uncountable. So yes, are people gonna die for their faith? Are people gonna reject? Absolutely. And is chapter nine, verses 20 and 21 depressing? Absolutely. But chapter seven, verse nine is good. But but, but chapter 11, verse 9, 13 and 14 and 15, that the rest were terrified, but some who were spared, they felt the tap on the shoulder and they gave glory to God. Amen. That only happens through the witnesses proclaiming and laying down their life. God does something through martyrdom and persecution that actually happens differently. Why? Because we're called to be like the Lamb of God, verse 15. And then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord. This day is coming. The 24 elders fell on their faces and they cried out. They say this prayer and this hymn. This is the third. Woe, give thanks to you, O Lord Almighty, who was and is. You took great power and you begun your reign. The nations raged and your wrath came, but the time of the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, the saints, those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. That day's coming. Church, may we be ready. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of the Covenant was seen and there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake. You've got this verse memorized. You saw it in four, you saw it in eight, you see it in 11. The new city's coming. Church, are we ready? The new tree of life is coming that has healing waters. That's what we just sang about. The life of Christ is coming. May we be ready to receive. So what are the implications? There's a ton. There's a ton. I can't wait to just sit in your life groups. Life groups, just record your stories. <laughs> Make sure that we're talking about being ready for the wrath of God that we deserve. And so here's the first implication. How do we respond? The first one is this. Let's repent and be ready. Amen? I want to invite you right now to just grab your communion elements wherever you are. 
going to ask you to open them. To me, it's my favorite song of Vintage Grace. When I hear that rustling, I, I just want you to hold them. Don't take them yet. Communion is for those who trust and treasure Jesus. Communion is for those who have repented. If you've not repented off the throne of your heart, please don't take communion. Talk to your friend that invited you and, and ask them, why do you take communion? But communion for us is a time for us to prepare our hearts to be ready. We're not saved by communion. We're saved by what communion represents, which is his life and his death and his body broken and his blood shed for us. And so I want to give you a moment right now. The band's going to sing a song. And I just want to give you a moment to, to repent. In communion, we check our hearts, we examine our hearts and we say, God, would you help me to repent for any time I've sat on the throne of your heart, would I just repent? Would I just get out of the way? And so I wanna give you a moment right now. If you know the song and wanna sing, sing. If you don't, just repent. We'll take it at the end of this doxology. Take this moment right now and repent. in heaven for us to repent and get off the throne of our heart and say God we praise you we are not judged by what we've done but by what you have done for us and so church there's nothing I can implore you more than to take this moment and repent because the wrath of God is deserved and it is earned by what I've done but we're spared by what he's done this is his body broken for you take this in remembrance of him symbol of his blood shed for you, the wrath of God that will be poured out on the world. It is coming and it is building and it's placed on Jesus for you. Take this in remembrance of him. So Lord, we praise you. We praise you for what you've done. We praise you for the work that you begun in the garden and the work that you took from one garden of Eden to the garden of Gethsemane and that we know that you are raising us up to a new garden someday. That you have taken us out of exile. That you have preserved us, that you have protected us. And so we repent and we receive all that you have done for me. The way of the lamb, we rejoice. That Jesus, you did not come and kill your enemies, but instead, Jesus, you laid down your life and died for them that you gave your life as a ransom for many. 
And so we receive your life, we receive your death, we recognize that we must be marked by it. We must have that not on our foreheads, but on our hearts and on our hands. It must come out of our lips. May it be the sweetness of the honey that you have overcome the world, that you are good, and that there is nothing that separates us from your love, nothing. Not the brokenness of this world, not the reality of my flesh, and not the evil one that comes to kill and destroy. You have overcome the world. And everybody said. So two implications. The first one is this, church, may we be praying people. You know why I love the prayer Maranatha? He's coming. We cry out and say, Lord God, come. Lord Jesus, come. Make this right. Take the brokenness of this world and restore it back to the new garden. Jesus started that work in Gethsemane and he laid down his life. Again, don't miss this church, it's the way of the lamb. We're following him. Are we laying down our lives? Are we crying out to God? The prayers of the people matter. We see that in Revelation. We see them cry out in six and we see chapters eight through 11. It's a response to the prayers of the people, but don't miss this. The wrath of God does not bring repentance from Pharaoh. The wrath of the trumpets doesn't bring repentance. When does repentance come in the book? After the witnesses. After the witnesses model and say, no, 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 the life of Jesus is worth my death. That's when repentance comes. And so church, please don't miss this reality. Please don't miss, that's my third implication, that we will pray, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. And here's the third one, that we will prophesy. And so church, I just don't want you to miss the moment. Cancer is going to affect us in this room. COVID's going to affect us. The brokenness of the world is going to affect us. Jesus told us, and here's what he told us, there are no setbacks in the kingdom, only setups. There is no bad news, only good news for his glory, for our good, and for the good of others. And yes, we may die, but because of Christ, we live. Amen? Just this last week, someone came up to me after service, and they just said, Drew, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm 75 years old, and I recognize that my black tape only has so much left. I'm like, okay, where's this going? I don't want to waste it. Church, don't miss your moment. Don't miss your moment wherever that is. Don't miss your moment and your suffering. Don't miss your gap. Don't miss the wrath of God. Don't miss the judgment. And don't miss that mercy is what drives repentance. And so Jesus says, you wait a little while longer until more people respond to the mercy. How will they respond to the mercy if we don't prophesy? And by prophesy, church, that just means foretelling the future you know the end of score. You know the future. You know what happens. And so again, to my 75-year-old friend, to my 7-year-old friend that just got diagnosed with a terminal illness, to my 18-year-old friend, to Margaret, our our 54-year-old pastor in Africa who's now with Jesus, don't waste the moment. Don't miss this chance to go. The best part of our church is not that we gather, but that we scatter. And as we scatter, we prophesy, we tell stories. We tell stories of how we too were once in captivity. We too were once in bondage to sin. We too were once enslaved to the prince of this world. But greater is he that came than he that's in the world. And everybody said, don't say amen, go tell the story. And so I want to get you ready to tell the story. So would you stand with me? Would you stand with me and prepare your heart to go tell the story of how you too were once a captive, but you've been set free. May we actually tell the different story of Pharaoh. I deserved wrath, but God gave me grace. Church, let's celebrate and let's sing today of his glory and his goodness. Thank you for joining us for our Revelation series. As you go this week, be comforted by the knowledge that God is in control and he desires nothing more than for you to find full and complete joy in him. See you next week.